G'day, Osha here. Thanks for downloading this episode of Better Than Yesterday. I am grateful you're here. If this is your first episode, welcome. You're listening to a podcast because you uh, like podcasts, but you would probably know that podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So I need to pay the people that help me make this show to very talented, very professional people, Andy Murray and Rachel Barrett. So in order to pay them, I need to play ads on this show. So you might hear an ad right now. Also, you might not hear an ad right now depending on what your algorithms have been doing. So if you hear an ad, thanks for helping me put, keep the lights on. And if you don't, let's get straight to Lisa Harding. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Recovery has to come from the individual, the desire to get well, and no amount of cajoling, no amount of manipulation, no amount of threats, and I know about this, years of it, will get that person better. And it is heartbreaking to look at somebody you love, perhaps killing themselves. The advice I would give is to get help for yourself first. That's really important that you get support and that you learn about what alcoholism or any kind of addiction is because it's impossible to fix somebody else. I am very close to my younger brother and I adore him. You know, he's not well at the moment. He's still kind of getting help, relapsing, getting help, relapsing. That's his life. That's his pattern right now. So, you know, you need help if you're loving somebody who is in the throes of addiction. And there's a lot of it out there. That is actor, author, and playwright Lisa Harding. And this is episode 377 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here today on the show. Lisa Harding, the Irish uh, playwright, actress, and author. She's on the show to talk about her brand new book, Bright Burning Things. More about Lisa in just a second. If you're new to the show, welcome. This is a podcast called Better Than Yesterday. This show is here to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. I guarantee that you'll hear something on this show that helps you make today better than yesterday. Same goes for every one of these shows. I've been here since 2013. Uh, every Monday, I'm here with a guest. Every Friday, I'm here with you. Thank you for the feedback about uh, Friday's episode around figuring out your own rules, your own rules of engagement, rewriting your own rules of engagement. It's interesting stuff. I hope you found some value in it. I'm just trying to share with you what worked for me and I'm hoping that that can you know, help you along the way. Today's podcast is a, is a bit of a heavy one, but it's it's well and absolutely, truly worth it. If you're brand new, my name's Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad and a stepdad and a motorcycle parker and a bin taker outer and a recycling cardboard 
bin night box cutter upper from Sydney, Australia. I live here with my wife, Audrey, our two kids, our two dogs, and um, our two motorbikes. <laughs> And too many bicycles to count. And yeah, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I'm also 11 years sober. And I talked about 10 years of sobriety. I talked about it on the show. If you want to scroll back, you can go and find that. I'm also 11 years sober. And I find conversations about sobriety, I like having them because when I was drinking, I was never able to find conversations that I could relate to about sobriety. I'd occasionally, every now and then, I remember... The first conversation I heard about sobriety that I could relate to was the day after Heath Ledger passed away and Gary Oldman was a guest on Steve Jones's radio show, Jones's Jukebox, when I was living in LA. And I heard these two guys that I had enormous respect for, the guitar player from the Sex Pistols and Gary fucking Oldman, just mourning the loss of this young actor, this incredibly talented young actor, and just going, oh yeah, I'm 25 years. Oh yeah, I'm 30 years. Oh man. Like, and I was just like, What? you guys are sober? And I'd never seen or heard sobriety kind of experienced by people that I looked up to like that. But, you know, that got ignored very quickly and I, and I kept drinking for another, another four or five years. But I think it's really important to put conversations about alcohol, about alcohol abuse and about sobriety out into the public sphere because I know when I was drinking, I didn't see any other option. I possibly wasn't looking for any other option, but I also wasn't hearing the conversations that were, listen, your life can be big and incredible and amazing and a whole lot less painful if you live it without alcohol. The conversations I only chose to be present to were life is boring and you're a boring man and no fun at all if you stop drinking. So with that in mind, let me tell you about my guest today. Lisa Harding is an actress, an author, and a playwright from Ireland She's extraordinarily talented. Her latest book is called Bright Burning Things. I've read it. It is a devastating look at the savage effects of addiction on a young mother and her ability to raise her son. This might be close to home for a lot of people. Uh, Lisa and I talk about this, that a lot of the story of alcoholism and alcohol abuse is quite male-centric. And the story of, you know, I guess in the public eye and the public sphere, conversations about women who have a problem with alcohol or women who have alcohol use disorder is not quite as well told. And it's often mired in, in other, you know, codependency issues and things like this. This book was so fantastically close to home. And, and what's brilliant about our understanding that I'm alcoholic is understanding also that I'm not a special snowflake and the symptoms that I'm experiencing, the cravings, the yearning, the lying, the everything is just the same shit that happens to everyone, no matter if you're a man, a woman, a teenager, a geriatric person, someone from one country or another. I've been to fellowship meetings all over the world and in all different countries and all different languages. And I have just heard the same story told the same way in hundreds of different voices. Lisa's voice is one of those. Now, we get quite deep into this. Don't worry, the sunshine comes out again at the end of the conversation, but I think it's really important. And I'm really grateful that Lisa was able to come on the show and, and talk about it and exploring what it is to be addicted to alcohol, to explore how your life can unravel when you are addicted to alcohol through a novel, Lisa has done something very, very powerful because it allows you to be kind of accessible. And uh, because whenever we read a novel, we to make the story come to life, we embody our own experiences into the novel. And this is how Lisa's chosen. Her writing is just exquisite and it's really powerful and fantastic. So I hope you really get a load out of this conversation. If alcohol is an issue for you or someone in your life is alcohol is an issue for you there is plenty of help um, a conversation that should start with your doctor um, in my experience i found 12-step fellowships to be incredibly helpful both fellowships for the person who is drinking and fellowships for the person who is related to the person who is drinking whether it's a, it's a relative or a friend of yours that is drinking and using i find i have found those meetings to be very very helpful as well which lisa and i do go into so the book is called Bright Burning Things. It's out now. It's a fantastic read, and this is a very important conversation. 
with Lisa Harding. Enjoy. I've been to your country twice, but okay. I've, only, I've only been to Dublin once. And I was there for, I want to say, 20 hours. Okay. And I flew from Sydney to go to interview Mr. Vox and Mr. The Edge and Mr. Mullen okay. and Junior okay. and Mr. Clayton at their old house um, before they built right. a high rise. But this is in the old days when I was drinking. <laughs> Best place to be. Well, Lisa, let me tell you, it's like we want you to go to Dublin to interview you too. And I'm thinking, all right, so that's two 12-hour business class binges, then about six hours of sleep, do the interviews, back to the hotel, back to the bar, then two more 10 to 12-hour business class. Yes, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're all a lot more sedate these days. Uh, look, <laughs> the guys. I, I, no, I'm just I'm just talking about my own drinking. You know, I would have had a much more lovely time in your country had I not been just absolutely slaughtered. Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of that's what it's renowned for, isn't it? Well, the pubs and the. I think I think there's something you know of reading bright burning things and recognizing so much. I think. Our lot, you know, when you look at the genealogy of our accent, when you know anthropological linguists look at the Australian accent, there's so much Irish in it, mm. right? And mm. you know, I think about what about our binge drinking culture? Mm. Where did that come from? Where's the origins of that? So I think we share that. However, from opposite ends of colonialism, <laughs> where the, where the colonists <laughs> living with so the shame that, of what we've done? Yeah, that's interesting to bring in that, like the yeah, shame. And colonialism and the the inherited trauma and alcoholism and you know nobody really knows, do they? I mean, where the if genetic, you know, what the history conditioning, all of that stuff. But I do, I mean, my personal experience definitely it's running away from stuff that hasn't been faced. You end up staring down the end of the of the bottle or whatever <laughs> substance to to get to get away from those feelings. So tough road yeah avoidance behaviors in my own experience if it uh, i generally i tried to do everything at once at one point which involved gambling and internet shopping and online porn and just and mm -hmm. and then everything that i could drink or smell uh <laughs> or swallow but yeah you're right everything was that just to try to get away from the feeling inside my own my own body. And for some people, it's not alcohol. For some people, it is, you know, hiding the online shopping things in the boot of the car so their partner doesn't yeah. see them. And, you know, just and the other to thing that interests me, yeah, like you can latch on to so many different things if you have that addictive, whether it's nature or, you know, mm. is it genetic? Is there a gene that we all share? I don't yeah. know. But certainly in Ireland, there's a lot of, you know, genetic overspill, definitely an intergenerational trauma. I don't know about with you but that that certainly plays into it but also I was very interested in you know Ruby Wax writes brilliantly about fame addiction and it's not that my character isn't like she's not necessarily so addicted to fame but she's absolutely addicted to the kick of performing and getting high that way you know the attention kick and when that's removed from her life the void because I, I was an actress for years I was a stage actress in London and I consciously stopped for lots of reasons, most of them positive, you know, eight years ago. But my God, the come down, it was unreal. It's like you don't realise there's nothing like being on stage, you know. Mm. And I thought that for Sonia, that was kind of where her initial addictive impulse latched. And then when she didn't have it. I can very, very much relate to that. We're, talk we're talking about the book, um, Bright Burning Things. Sonia's the the protagonist uh, it's told in the you know as is if she's narrating it herself there's two other very important characters tommy her son and um herbie the dog which is <laughs> brilliant but i can definitely relate to what you're saying i in my own journey people ask you know i i've you know been quite open about you know suffering from anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder and people are like you, you suffer from anxiety what are you doing on stage I'm like you don't understand if I'm standing on stage looking down the barrel of a camera and there's two million people watching, when am I more mm. in control? Mm. Everyone's quiet and I'm talking. It's the 
perfection. Mm. It's the most beautiful place to exist in the world because mm. I'm in charge of everything. You can channel that absolute intense anxiety. It's, and <laughs> apart from feeling extraordinarily alive and I know because I was a very anxious actress too, but very good with the right, <laughs> with the right part. It, generally the kind of tragic victim when I was younger, I did a lot of that on Janu and but it was great. It was such a release, you know, and mm. a real way of channeling all of that stuff that you can't sit with. So very difficult when that's removed from your life. How did you cope with it at first when you when you stepped away from the stage? And it's 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 unless you've done it, it's very hard to go. Oh, hang on, what? So eight hundred people aren't going to shout my name when I go home from work today and clap as I leave the room. <laughs> no, I didn't get 800 people shouting my name. <laughs> I was never, I was, it was a little bit more moderate, but I had a lot of people clapping and yeah. I would have been in some plays where there were standing ovations and then you have critics writing about you and you constant being judged and a lot of auditions. So, you know, constantly on the edge. I think though I was lucky because I had started to write and I had started to also, as I was getting older, I had just turned 40 when I decided, well, a little bit earlier, actually, about 38. But 40, I was like, I I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life, living out of a suitcase and living off my nerves and not being very well in my stomach. And just the lack of control, the lack of creative control, you know, you know, waiting around for the phone to ring and all of that. So I, I definitely made a conscious choice to focus on writing. And I was very lucky because I had started to write plays and realised there was a voice there, you know, and I had stuff to say. And I went and did an MPhil in creative writing at that point. And that was a brilliant transition because right. it was fantastic to go back and learn something new and, you know, focus my brain again. And I, I really loved writing. I really loved it. It's isolating, as all our lives are right now. But <laughs> it's intensely isolating to be a yeah. writer. But I, I love the creative process. I'm not going to lie, reading, reading Bright Burning Things, it was, if not for anything, quite confronting because mm-hmm. it was very much like, Lisa, were you watching? Like, were you, were you taking notes as you followed me around? Like, um, <laughs> it's a <laughs> savage depiction of so many, the, the multifaceted complexity of addiction and in this case, alcohol addiction, uh, mostly. Mm-hmm. And, I was reading it going like, you know, I say like occasionally there's a particular show on Netflix I love called BoJack Horseman and I watch it and I'm like, there's people who wrote this that know. There's people that wrote this that are in just serious recovery because you cannot come. It's about an actor, an ex-actor who gets clean. It's like you cannot Aye. come up with this shit unless you've been there. You must like, check that out. Oh, that it's great. cracking. It's a cartoon about a, an ex-80s actor with a horse's head. <laughs> But it's it's brilliant. Will Arnett plays the brilliant. Guy. It's extraordinary. But so I'm I'm reading this book and I'm like, yeah, you you know, you didn't just talk to people like you you know. Yeah, yeah. My story is I I grew up in a family that was pretty much soaked in alcohol, and so I've grown up with it, and you know, spent my life trying to figure out the triggers, and you know, obviously you try to fix when it's parents, and then my. My brother is a very, very serious alcoholic and he is really struggling. He's really challenged on so many levels, but I have been his primary carer. And where I'm concerned, I do know, but it was an interesting one because my understanding of alcoholism, it's progressive illness. And unless you get help and you address it, it's going to kill you. I mean, it's it's very likely to kill you at some point. But with where I'm concerned, I have an addictive personality but it kind of floated and attached to different things and I did get help very young I was very lucky I was going out with a guy we were only 19 and his dad was in AA and his he was falling around drunk and so was I but you know we were kids but he got into AA very young at 19 and I was introduced to the whole notion of recovery then so I had a couple of years of blacking out and a couple of years of being out of control, but it never took hold the way it's taken hold in other members of my family because it was checked very early on, you know. Wow, you got, sounds like you you got pretty lucky there. Yeah, I know, I did. And alcoholism being a family illness, you know, that's... Yeah. But I think when you grow up with addiction, it's normalised. Well, that's, you know, that's what you know. But you, but then as you get older, you realise, gosh, I was living with a huge amount of anxiety and adrenaline. 
Yeah. And some of it's fun. I mean, some of it's fun. Like, it's crazy fun, but but terrifying. It's interesting you talk about the normalising of it because we only really know our own family of origin for so long and it's not really, you know, if it's if it's a common, you know, behaviour within the community, you may not even realise until, I don't know, you're in your mid-teens and you start going to high school and start having sleepovers at other people's houses in another yeah. suburb, another part of the city, and you look around and go, hang on, all your furniture's new. <laughs> what's, all, what's, what's this about? <laughs> now, hang on, you're talking about stuff, you know, you're sitting down and you're talking about books or, or the world. or Yeah, it's amazing. It's like you've got a great deal of unravelling to do and untangling, I think, if that's the case. So... It's been a fascination of mine for a long, long yeah. time. And, you know, it's difficult to write about when it's so close. Yeah. But Sonia, I, I kind of love her. I know she's really prickly and difficult and not every reader even likes her. I, I know some readers can't even stick with her, but I loved her. I mean, <laughs> she is a composite of, you know, me and a lot of people I know. And she's really trying. Yeah. I do want to get to that, but just... To put a pin in the having a, you know the tap on the shoulder at about nineteen, going, hang on a shake here, yeah, hold on here, Lisa. There's a and being shown very clearly. Look, there's no getting out of this. If you're on these train tracks, this is where they end. All right, so you can either get off the train tracks or end up there, and you can't get out of it because that's where it's going to end. Do you mm. think that if a, you know if someone's listening and they're you know kind of relating a little to Sonia's story or what we're talking about, particularly the normalisation of alcoholism within a family, do you think that there's a responsibility to go, oh crikey, I better sort this out. I better go on. That sounds like you know what I grew up with or similar. I might just I should go talk to someone. Like, would you want people to know that? you know, the outcomes could be a lot better for you in a few years from now if you start sorting it out now? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you're right, I was lucky because I was exposed to the whole concept of the family illness of alcoholism young, mm. the effects that that was having on me, you know, growing up with it. And um, I was lucky, no doubt. But for your listeners, absolutely. I mean, there is help out there. There's there's a world, as you know, there's a world of study on recovery also on the effects on on people who who live with active addiction i mean i think often not i think it's it statistically often people get sicker who are living with active addiction they internalize all the shame and you know all the trying to fix and it's an exhausting roller coaster for the person living with the addict as well as for the person suffering with addiction. So in a family, it is a family system that gets very, very disturbed. When it does come to family and as you've been generous enough to talk about and share about your own family, about your, your brother, which I'm, I'm grateful for, because I think it's important to normalise and not say, oh, there's someone close, like, thank you for being, you know, I'm generous. I'm sure he's let you talk about it. Yeah. And it's very generous of him too so that, you know, we can as, mm. you know, grown-ups go, well, here it is. It's like saying, oh, my person I love has got uh, some horrible tumour inside their body. Like it's, 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 a, it's a disease. It's not them. One of the things about Sonia that people may not understand if they've never been exposed to alcoholism or, or, or lived with it is that she does try. She really recognises that something's up. And she mm -hmm. just tries. But when it's someone in your family, what would you say to the person who's like, come on, man, I've got my shit together. Why can't you get your shit together? Just don't have a fucking drink, man. Like, what would you say to someone uh, who's got that kind of look when they think about someone who's, you know, just drinks too much? Yeah. I mean, that's the heartbreak. That That is the absolute heartbreak because recovery has to come from the individual, the desire to get well. And no amount of cajoling, no amount of manipulation, no amount of threats, and I know about this, years of it, will get that person better. And it is heartbreaking to look at somebody you love, perhaps killing themselves, and even no amount of love. I think the advice I would give is to get help for yourself first. That's really important that you get support and that you learn about what alcoholism or any kind of addiction is as you say that concept of disease because it's impossible to fix somebody else I am very close to my younger brother and I adore him I mean I absolutely adore him and he's you know he's not well at the moment but he does try and he himself got to the stage where he said but it took a long time 
I need help. But he he's one of those, you know, at the moment, he's still kind of getting help, relapsing, getting help, relapsing. That's his life. That's his pattern right now. So, you know, you need help if you're loving somebody who is in the throes of addiction. It's, and there's a lot of it out there. Yes. And I, I get it. Because you just want to you want to look after the person that you love and care about, and you want them to not hurt, yeah. and you also want them to stop. And then when they either drink or drug themselves to you know financial ruin, and they come to you, you're like, "Well, I don't want you to get thrown out of your house. Of course, I'll give you rent or whatever." And you really want to well, help them. Yeah, I mean that's a pattern that went on with me for a long time until it stopped because I I had to get quite a lot of help around that. And uh, they say, you know, that of course it's natural when you love somebody to try to rescue them. But you know the whole concept of the bottom. And unless somebody absolutely feels that there is nobody there enabling them, all of the language, you know, around colluding with, it's very difficult because you just love the individual and you don't see it that way. But I do know for myself, for my own life, when I did emotionally step back and put the focus on my own well-being, it's been interesting. He he had a very tough year last year, um, but he's doing better now and he got really good support because I stepped back. I'm not saying he's fully in recovery, but, you know, he got a lot of help. So, yeah, for people listening, it's, it's a, it is absolutely a heartbreaking journey to to take that step back. It, it, and I really get what you're saying because it does go against everything that we have done our entire lives this person that we love this could be your mum dad you could you be your son your daughter your brother your sister your wife your husband your boyfriend your girlfriend everything we've done since we've known them has been to help them and have them not feel pain mm. to jump in there and as you mentioned try to fix cover for try mm. to make do clean up after whatever to understand that if i want to change them i have to change myself that's a that's a leap to make. Well, there's really nothing. Is. There's no problem with me. I'm not. I'm not the one drinking cast wine at nine in the morning. Mm. <laughs> I know it's it's very difficult, and I think people who tend to kind of mind and fix and you know is it, there's lots of words that people use para alcohol co alcoholic you know codependent all those labels but whatever I mean I think it's human nature to love and to want to help but yes it's equally an addiction for some people. It really is. It's so difficult to put it down, to put, you know, because you feel that person and their life is in your hands. I think particularly for parents, uh. I, I think the agony of that. But I feel like my younger brothers, I've always felt like a kind of, you know, his mother figure. Yeah. We're very close in that way. And there's seven years between us. So I was the older bossy sister <laughs> always. But yeah, it, it is a heartbreaking illness. Lisa, what's the like outpatient or even inpatient rehab situation like in in Ireland? It's pretty terrible. I mean, I, I don't know. In my book, I don't know if you've got as far as the kind of the rehab section, that, which is run by nuns. It's a charitable organisation. Um, you know, I'm not. I am not by any means saying I'm not dissing it. However. We do not have state-run rehab for people who don't have private health insurance. So you are not exposed to psychiatrists or even addiction specialists. So it's all the religious 12-step approach, which I know saves people's lives and I know is an absolute godsend and it's part of recovery. But I believe that there's, you know, each individual needs individual support. We we need a kind of a person-centered therapeutic approach and we do not get it. If you have private health insurance, you will get get it all, yeah. or you could pay. You know, it's a very expensive oh, treatment. Yeah, but what parent wouldn't dig into their pension fund to save their You'd kid? You'd be surprised. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, yeah. No, there are parents that don't. Yeah, right. It, it is tricky when. Yeah. yeah and I look. I I agree with you. The twelve step approach is as one approach. It's not the only mm -hmm. approach. There are other things mm -hmm. that are effective for different people. Uh, depends on, you know, what resonates with you. It would be very tough as, you know, someone who's personally, I got lucky I didn't have to go to rehab, but to know that the only rehab I went to would be run by nuns and it was a church thing, I was like, fuck, I'm not fucking going. 
Like no, that alone would keep that alone would keep me out of there. They are extraordinary places. Like my brother's been in about four or five times. I think, I mean, statistically, it, it, they're not working. Yeah. They are not working statistically the number of people that go back in but they are extraordinary places there's a lot of kindness yeah. there's sucker you know there's warmth but they're still honestly they're still kind of using hail mary and the rosary as a therapeutic approach and there's no like i really sh- was shocked by that because a lot of the centers my brother's been in is are mainly men there are maybe 20% women and a lot of the men are men that have kind of fallen through the cracks that will have spent time in prison or actually are actively homeless and end up, you know, in these places and they get a warm bed and they get fed. And, but they have to go to the rosary three times a day. And they all, in terms of therapeutic help, they go to AA meetings, which are not run by, you know, trained therapists. And I also think there's that whole thing about what is underlying you know yeah. the addiction so it's not just purely about a dual diagnosis i believe probably every alcoholic has some kind of dual diagnosis let's ex- let's explore that a bit because that might be the first time someone's heard those two words together how would you define because that does come into sonia's story yeah i mean that god <laughs> poor alcoholic because not only first of all like they have to learn to live manage themselves without the substance putting down the substance but when i say dual diagnosis generally there's some underlying issue and it can be as serious as you know a personality disorder that hasn't been addressed a very serious mental issue depression oftentimes trauma serious trauma that's never been talked about never been addressed so there's a whole layer you know, of work that needs to happen. And obviously to just address the alcohol, that in itself may keep the person alive, but, you know, there's an awful lot of work underneath. For the, for the person to become whole, to kind of manage their own impulses, to, to learn to like themselves, really, you know, to become who they're meant to be. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a lot of work there. I was lucky in my, in my own journey I got sober in Los Angeles, which has just a very different view of that sort of thing. This is nearly 11 years ago now. It's a little different now in Australia, I'd like to think. But Mm. at the time, I don't think I could have gotten sober in Australia because of the, oh, you fucking quitter, (laughs) because of that that (laughs) attitude. Is there a similar attitude in Ireland around, around it? Perhaps, yes, perhaps men, women. I mean, at the moment, because of COVID and people being like Sonia's experience in the book is very extreme. She's very isolated Mm. and she's a single mother and she's forced to kind of be in one spot. And, you know, all her external resources have been taken away from her. And I thought like at the moment, a lot of my friends are performers and artists, actors, singers, and they're all experiencing this right now. So around alcohol, I know, sorry, I've gone off the point, but I think it's very acceptable, hugely acceptable to use alcohol to try to soothe oneself. And I know at the moment, you know, alcohol sales have gone way up, probably in Australia too, but certainly Ireland, we have a miserable winter. It's been grey and raining and, you know, it's a tough, tough winter in Ireland and England. They're really, really grey and awful and people get down you know they get really down and they we do drink to kind of you know bring a little bonhomie and a bit of warmth and at the moment people are drinking a lot more at home which is uh, we forget it's a depressant you know it makes you depressed the next day you might feel lovely and warm and jizzy for a while but you know yourself you've experienced that but people are definitely turning to it more and more and more at the moment in a very socially acceptable way but I think it can creep up very easily, that addiction. Yeah. The, I, look, for me, that's when I think the slope started to get very slippery because I lived alone and who's mm. going to know that I had this opened and drank the second bottle? Nobody. It's between me and mm. the man in the bottle shop. And, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything. He's my guy, <laughs> you know. And, so, you know, drinking alone because I never, I never had alcohol in the house and then, you know, I started to have it. But one thing that, is far more prevalent in Ireland than here is the, the the pub culture and we can't 
be in COVID times, right? So the idea of like, should I have, you know, a case of beer at home? Well, there's a pub on the corner and I can go and see my friends and have some pints. And that's it, mm. you know, so there's a, it's, it's intermesh. It's like people who are trying to quit smoking. Like, how am I supposed to stop at a red light without lighting up? How am I supposed to answer the phone without lighting up? Like, how am I supposed to talk to my friends without having a beer? There's these humongous hurdles to leap over. Yeah. And you're right. And they say, like, I've been to many family days and, you know, these various rehab centers. And they do say alcohol is the hardest drug to stay off. And also, as you've probably read this, but there are many medics now who would say if alcohol was to come onto the market now as a new drug, it would probably be prescription only. <laughs> like the, we don't, I don't think we understand the effects on the brain and the emotions and how strong it is, particularly for some people with the chemical makeup. It's very hard to know and very hard to know that when you're that 14 year old and you have your first drink, you can be addicted the minute you drink. But in a way, putting down heroin is an easier process. It's been written about because you can actually take yourself away from that world. Whereas if you, you're right, you come out of rehab, you may have not drunk for like three months. And the first thing you see are like posters everywhere. You go into the petrol station, you go into the supermarket, totally normalized. Everybody's at it, you know, very hard to stay off. Just going to take a moment away from the show with Lisa Harding to tell you that if uh, conversations uh, with uh, brilliant and eloquent and powerful women around alcoholism and overcoming addiction and taking responsibility and, and creating a life in sobriety, if those kind of conversations uh, are things that you yearn for, I would encourage you to go back in time and check episode 200 of the show with the magnificent Fiona O'Loughlin. By the time I was ready for rehab, and I'd lost a lot, you know, my intention was to work out how to live with being this unhappy. Uh, That's what I thought the best outcome was. Yeah. Uh, okay, you have to live in this head find a way okay i'll go here and i'll stay there until i work it out I had no idea that there was that four letter word called hope <laughs> <laughs> i'm chowing down on it now yeah i love it so for folks who are listening who might have heard something in what you've said and gone you know what that sounds that reminds me of mm. a little part of myself well what would you say to that you're not a bad person trying to be good you're a sick person trying to be well. That is Fiona O'Loughlin all the way back in episode 200. I thoroughly encourage you to check out that conversation. All right, we're either going to play some ads and get back to the show or we're just going to get straight back to the show. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned that among the you know the people that you know, you know and in your community of performers, I mean, you know, the arts were the first thing to go, but they were also yeah. the first thing that everybody turned to. The moment we all got locked inside, it's like, well, let's watch some people pretending and telling stories and Netflix shows. <laughs> like, well, fine. How about you pay them to make some more? Oh, no, 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 no. Can't do any of that. So these, you know, know. these entire industries of, of people and not just the people in front of the camera, like every person in front of the camera, there's 30 people not on I camera. Know who are not working, you know, there's lighting mm. techs and audio people and staging and mm. catering and like everybody and all the, you know, there's people who might have had careers for 30, 40 years uninterrupted mm. and now suddenly they mm. work. So certainly in this country we figured it out. It's probably around 
around 400,000 people, 500,000 people in, you know, the whole entertainment industry. Mm. Shitload of people, right? Mm. And then so it's widely acceptable, widely acceptable, uh, socially normalised way of dealing with uncomfortable feelings in, inside the body. And, mm. you know, no one's going to say, oh, heck of a day, oh, you want to top up? Yeah. No one's going to say no. Mm. I know, I know. And I, I mean, I'm personally really appalled by this has been going on nearly a year and the lack of mental health resources and the lack of focus on it around COVID and, you know, people losing, as you say, their identity, their absolute identity. And we all, as human beings, we use structure and we use our professions. You know, I teach a lot. I, I don't know. I haven't in nearly a year and I love it. And it's very important for me to have that balance between sitting in my own room in my head, creating characters, you know, to being in the real world and interacting with people. And it's it's been really, really difficult. And if you live alone, and now I'm saying there, I'm not saying like it's the worst scenario, but it's certainly extraordinarily challenging right now. I have a dog, thank God. <laughs> and you can tell I adore animals. So, yeah. And I have a great connection with my dog. But, you know, you, you have to sit with your head. You can't get away from it. So, And of course, then there are people in relationships that are very stressed. And I don't think putting alcohol in the mix is helpful or healthful for any of us when we're challenged with our mental health at the moment. And I don't think that's being addressed. And I'm, you know, I find... The absolute focus, I mean, this virus is very serious and it's out there and I'm not I'm not one of those people that doesn't believe in it and I take my precautions and I wear my mask. And, but, you know, there is a whole other aspect to this that I don't think is being addressed. And I was surprised, you know, that my character, Sonia, is in exactly this situation that some of my single mom friends are in now. I mean, how hard is that to be on your own at home with little ones and they're not going to school and you don't have support, you know. Yeah. And we, you know, we work really hard on, you know, both our kids trying to teach them as much as we can to emotionally regulate. Mm. I never learned how to do that, you know. No. So if I'm suddenly like dealing <laughs> no. with, and certainly as I got bigger mm. and, you know, as you mentioned, it was around 14, 15 when suddenly, you know, my body's more powerful and my emotions are super intense and I don't know how to not feel everything all at once. I don't know anything about breathing. I don't know anything about calming myself down. I don't know anything about mindfulness. Oh, beer. Oh, that made it all. Oh, <laughs> this stuff's great. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you're right. It's there's, true. Th mm. There's so much regulation that, like really simple things that we could learn when we were younger to... Mm help those horrible, uncomfortable feelings in our body at least help us learn how to be with them. When it comes to, mm -hmm. it's not going to say that you you touch on jaunty light subject matter uh, in your work, Lisa. Um, <laughs> you do some pretty heavy lifting, mate. Um, between uh, Bright Burning Things and Harvesting, your previous book, which was about human trafficking, you have, you've really dug in the dirt and you really have, you've opened up the gaping moor of the darkness. How on earth do you manage to regulate yourself? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I do. I, I'd be very conscious of it. I meditate and, you know, I've done, I, I've had various wonderful therapeutic help over the years, but I'm very conscious of uh I love there's an expression derobing and it's about like particularly for creative people. So and when I used to, I didn't know when I was younger. So I used to as I say, I used to get cast. I was always the tragic victim and I was very good at it. So obviously my writing is following suit, but I never knew how to get out of character. And it was really dangerous. And I did get help around that, particularly in my twenties. I was playing um I was playing a Tennessee Williams character, you know, in The Glass Menagerie, young Laura. And she is so socially awkward and isolated and has this overbearing mother and all these difficulties. And anyway, she was panic attacking on stage. And I was such a method actress that I was actually bringing on panic attacks. I was genuinely doing it. And then it triggered, it kind of went into my life. I had no idea how to regulate, as you say, manage myself. It was all about just being a brilliant performer. So as I'm older, 
I'm in my 40s and I have had a lot of learning to do. But as as a writer, yeah, I'll stare down the barrel. I will absolutely look at things that other people can't or won't. And I will continue to do that. And I don't know. Yeah, we're all born for a reason. But I, I, I want that is kind of what I feel, you know, part of why I'm here is to actually shine a light on certain things that people don't want to talk about. The denial aspect, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't do denial. When you were, you know, you're no longer Laura, you've taken the bus home, you're around the house wondering when the gentleman calls will show up and um, <laughs> <laughs> was it one of your mates that went, uh, psst, Lisa, uh, <laughs> going a bit over the top here, mate. <laughs> like how oh. did you, did someone intervene? No, the difficulty was I was quite isolated because I was, we, we travelled around England ah. and none of my friends were with me. Ah. So I had no one to kind of ground me. Oh, and goodness. I remember the director when he met me, you know, it was in London, we cast it. And he said, like, the minute you walked in the room, you were her. And like years later, I was thinking that wasn't healthy. I mean, I thought that was brilliant, you know, the, the whole immersive Yeah. So with Sonia, I mean, I definitely, and writing about the young girls that were sex trafficked in Dublin, that I was involved in a campaign around that yes. for a long time. And it did affect me. And I'm writing a film now, I'm in development, and it is affecting me. And there's no doubt that that is the worst of human nature. Like you can't, you know, that is the darkest of the dark. Oh. But I don't know. I feel this compulsion and it's never about taking a subject just because of the, the gore element or what I wanted to do with those young girls was absolutely humanize them and bring them home and, yeah. you know, make us all realize young girls, sisters, friends, daughters, maybe one day mother, you know, so that it's always with me about Sonia's a very extreme character. She's an alcoholic mother. She's a middle-class alcoholic mother that there's a lot of taboo around, but it exists a lot behind closed doors. People don't want to talk about it. There's still a huge amount of shame. And I, I think it's about lifting the lid on the shame a lot. So tell me about yeah. when you're either researching, harvesting, and you are, you know, realising, oh, crikey, here, here in Dublin, less than 10Ks from my house, there's probably this many girls uh, who yeah. are underage. Like I go yeah. to bed at night and these girls are imprisoned and being forced into, you know, sex acts. When it's been a hard day of that, tell me about, what you described before. Tell me about derobing. Tell me what, what that looks like. What's that process? Yeah, so I will, uh, I have a quite a strict routine in the morning, which is exercise no matter what the weather. And I go outside and I get under the sky into nature. <laughs> I'm such a hippie. I use trees to ground. I do a lot of grounding. And I. it's about perspective. Nature, we've got beautiful hills here and the sea. And I use nature a lot. I love animals. I find incredibly innocent and pure and I'm not a mother but you know I have had various little rescue creatures and I'd love to get more I have really good friends which is really important when you are living solo and I connect every day with a friend so my routine would be go outside get exercise and meditate and then I will and then, I mean, yeah the way I write is pretty it's pretty intense and then I will spend I only spend three hours probably a day on that level of intensity and then I break it and I've a part of that is seeing people seeing people as you say like making sure your friends kind of like I have really good friends that you know know that I have that tendency to go and stare yeah. at these places so yeah it's a hard, it is a balance when you're drawn to staring down the barrel. It sounds like that you have, by necessity, created this scaffolding that exists yeah. and you yeah. have to maintain that scaffolding if you want to continue the intensity of the work that you do. Absolutely. And I think at the moment, particularly, I'm really grateful that I had this, as you say, scaffolding in place because I'm still continuing all of that, obviously. You know, even though, in, unfortunately, in the evening I had a two wonderful meditation groups. You know, I love meditating in a group. That's all gone. And that has been a terrible loss. And for so many people, all of our hobby courses, dance class, I love to dance, all of that's gone. So I'm lucky in that I have a strict routine in the morning, but I do find the evenings challenging. And I, I know I'm not alone. I mean, I have a lot of friends. A lot of us are living solo these days in life. So it's... um 
yeah, challenging not to have somebody to kind of break your train of thought. Well, yeah, it is. It's always I found, you know, I try not to lean on on my wife too much, um, but it does happen, unfortunately. I do lean on her a bit, but personally, I find it vital to check what other people's brains make of a situation because sometimes mm. I can get a bit lost and go, what just happened? Do you know that thing that happened earlier when we were at, that, you know, at someone's house? Did What? Who was that going? No, it wasn't? Okay. All right. You know, I find it because <laughs> I can run away and make up an entire yeah. story about what was actually going on. But I find yeah. I found that my, you know, that's a part of my recovery is understanding that my ability to perceive situations isn't that great. Mm. So don't trust whatever the feelings mm. that are rushing through my body about my read on the situation because it probably <laughs> isn't right. So ask somebody. <laughs> And I found that to be really it's so helpful. tricky, isn't it? I yeah. know, I know. But the wonderful thing about learning to meditate and you do learn to step back and look at all that chatter and learn, you know, the the part of us that can observe that. And, yeah. and sense of humor is good too. Like I think, you know, learning cheapers, that head of mine or that head, you know. Ooh. But, you know, I think as I've got older, I've learned that head of mine, which and sounds like you'd be similar, it can overanalyze and go off on stories and, you know, mm. attach to things. It's great when it's channeled correctly. Yeah. It's great you, when it's focused into work. You mentioned the the rush of being on stage and what it feels like to have that focus, that intense focus of, of, of people on you and then to go into a vacuum of now I'm just writing and there's no people's eyeballs aren't on me or whatever. Mm. But some of the reaction to your work, not just the critical reaction, but, you know, when you've got someone like Roddy Doyle going, this is fucking amazing, like, how do you manage that in a healthy way? How do you manage the, because your work has been rightly applauded quite wonderfully. How do you manage those kind of sentiments in a, in a healthy way? I'm sorry, I'm laughing because you're right. There's an ego hit. And, you know, I I was like, right, I'm going to get off the ego train, you know, being an actress. And then, of course, a writer. I mean, it's possibly even more intense when you have a book coming out because it's just you and people can say whatever the hell they like. No, it's exposing and I'm facing into it now. And it is quite dangerous, but I'm very conscious of what all that can do, you know, one minute you can be told you're absolutely amazing and brilliant and then you can get absolutely ripped to shreds by some critic or somebody who doesn't get it. And it's really, I mean, I'm talking to myself now to, to kind of hold myself in check. <laughs> They're just opinions. They, of course, when someone like Roddy and, you know, Lisa Tadeo, who I adore, who wrote Three Women and, you know, I've had Megan Hunter and writers that I really admire say great things. You do get it, of course. And I have to, you kind of have to allow yourself to, celebrate those little successes along the way but not to go into that crazy ego charge I love how Ruby Wax writes about all of that because she's really hugely honest about that particular and it's dangerous we know that people who get you know fame in whatever shape or form get attached to that particular hit it's probably the most dangerous and particularly with social media you know you can just get pulled all over the place oh yeah so no i'm gonna have to be really strict i mean about not reading stuff staying grounded the other thing is just to keep writing that's uh -huh. really important for me when a book comes out just keep working on stuff yeah yeah <laughs> smiling well no I, I understand the you know when you mentioned earlier the um the need to have a bit more control over the the career path you know, if I'm creating stuff, then at least if it doesn't get sold, then it's it's on me versus um, I hope I get this acting job so I hope I can pay my rent. You know, at least you have something to do every day that gives you a sense of agency about, about <laughs> your outcomes. I just did want to just kind of rewind for a second because there was a thing that you touched on which which Sonia represents that you, you mentioned was a bit not taboo but, you know, a bit shunned upon and certainly in this in our community here in Australia, the white and middle class female alcoholic. Why mm. do you think people would have a hard time believing that, you know, because the alcoholic stereotype is usually male, mm. you know, sometimes violent. Um, mm. You know, that's that's the stereotype. Why mm. do you think people are like middle? What's she got to worry about? Why is she alcoholic? Mm. Why do you why do you think that's the case? Well, I think first of all, I think it is quite a you know, relatively new phenomenon that women have been, to be honest, even allowed drink in the home. You know, so I'd say it was, it's difficult because it's, if it's particularly, if it's 
driven underground, so it's secretive. And I've I've been thinking a lot about how the generations have changed, you know, extraordinary from my mother's generation to mine, quite extraordinary. And I'm not sure that we have, well, we haven't managed to process it. And how come there's so many single people of both sexes now? But, you know, my mother's generation in the 70s in Ireland, they were not allowed to work. So you have a, an intelligent, creative person who gets pregnant and they have to just, and I don't mean just become a mother because I have huge respect. I haven't gone down that road because it terrifies me because I'd be so nervous of, you know, doing any damage. But anyway, so that generation, the 70s in Ireland, as opposed to, say, the 50s, they were the first generation of women. It was socially acceptable to open the white wine at lunch, to have the friends in, to, you know, the wine became a socially acceptable kind of norm in the house. And wine is an incredibly addictive drug and it can have very strong effects. And then I think certainly that generation, lack of purpose and being so frustrated and turning to alcohol, totally understandable. I mean, I've written about it, I think about it. Now, Sonia is, is of today, but it's similar in that she's in totally isolated. She cannot continue her acting career because she doesn't have support. And, you know, she's forced into being at home with this little boy who she absolutely adores, but gets it all wrong. But I, yeah, I think it's quite a recent phenomenon that women, there's still this idea that, you know, it's fine to open the bottle of wine at lunch or in the evening. And, you know, it's kind of socially acceptable, but this is quite new for women. And I think it's taking hold in a way that a lot of women are not conscious of. You know, the idea, you know, the white witch, the the white bitch, actually, you know, the, you see it sometimes, not just women, but I think women are more prone to the wine and the nastiness because it's all that pent up frustration. So, yeah, and nobody really wants to say, you know, maternal alcoholism, it's, it is still quite a taboo, I think. It's, it's interesting. You forget you talked about your mother's generation and... and you know, just when you think about the colossal changes that have happened in your country, crikey, in the time that you've been alive, the time yeah. that I've been alive, you know, yeah. um, the things that have come out like... The mother and baby homes. and Yeah. Oh, my God. The Magdalene Laundry stuff. That stuff is, you know, it's like just trying to deal with all those upheavals, those social upheavals and not having the capacity to talk about trauma and community trauma and, and looking for a way out. It's so, there's so much going on and, you know. <laughs> and now we have, now we have a pandemic. Yeah. It's like, ah, but, you know, some of my friends are therapists and they're saying it's been a very interesting, intense time because for a lot of people, that trauma yeah. is surfacing now. Right. You know? And ha what a difficult time because, you know, people who haven't addressed stuff, they're being forced to sit still and it's, it's surfacing. And then there aren't the supports, yeah. you know. So it's quite, it's uh, yeah. It, it's a real challenge when when you think that there's this wildly socially acceptable drug that, in my country at least, cricketers on TV drink it and they're having a great time. So why shouldn't I? Mm. It's a simple answer to a complicated question, but it's a complicated answer. <laughs> it's, it's an easy, quick fix, and I get it, man. I get it. Because I've had that first swig of beer and felt all that stuff vanish, you know. But mm. then the amount of alcohol that I needed to make that vanishing feeling happen just got more and more and more and more and more and more. And That's to the point it, yeah. where it became, you know, impossible, absolutely impossible. I really hope people enjoy reading uh, this book as, as difficult as it is. If someone has listened and, and they are relating to what we've been talking about, we, you and I are just like two human beings trying to talk about alcoholism and, you know, dual diagnosis and dealing with anxiety as, a, as, a, as an adult. But this is like a, a very straightforward looking in your face conversation. Why do you find telling a story is an effective or perhaps sometimes more effective way to communicate mm. the kind of things we're talking about? That's very interesting. Where I'm concerned, I mean, I'm very honest and I'm being very honest with you, but there's certainly memoir is a, a very exposing medium and it would be exposing to other people and I don't feel that's my place 
apart from that, I think there is a universal aspect to the novel. I, I am a huge reader, always have been. And so when you think of somebody like Dickens and what he did with, say, the plight of, you know, Oliver, and mm-hmm. I loved Oliver when I was younger, the orphan, and but, but really climbing inside him and making him human and becoming a social commentator in that way, that would touch so many more hearts and minds than investigative journalism or straight reporting of the facts. So I love the novel. I am a huge fan. I know it's kind of in danger at the moment because we have extraordinary writing on Netflix and amazing visuals, but there's something about that private contract between the reader and the writer and the the fact that we can create these images in our minds that is so, so powerful. And I've just finished reading Shuggy Bane. You've probably heard of that. It won the Booker last year. And actually, there's an alcoholic mother at the centre. And my book has been compared, but they're very different. And I hadn't even read it. So there. But it's absolutely amazing in a very different way to it. They're not similar at all. But the heart, the empathy, the ability to climb inside, you know, other people's experiences. I think reading can be such an act of empathy and extension of yourself and can give you perspective. And I, I really love the novel. I would agree with you. I would absolutely agree with you. And I'm, and I'm glad you said it because it was in reading Sonia's experience, I was able to look at some of my own experience in a way that I've never looked at before, mm. particularly when it comes around to, you know, familial stuff and, and things like that. And I've bought therapists holiday homes, all right? I have, like, <laughs> I, I, have, I have spent some money on those couches, let me tell you. But I think you're right. I think when you're reading a story, as you mentioned, it was a, it's a private contract between author and reader and it's up to my brain to fill in the gaps and what am I going to fill them in with my own experience. And if I have an experience of a character similar enough to a character in the book, boom, it's personal. And that does Mm. allow you then to look at it from a perspective you may have never read it before. So I certainly hope as I found it as confronting as it was and Mm. uh, good because it made me look at things quite starkly. I certainly hope people find a similar amount of healing and perspective when they they read Sonia's story. And there is hope. And it is important to say that. And there is a huge amount of love. And, you know, love is, yeah, it doesn't erode the love. I tell you, before I... Honestly, before I had kids, I could read stories like this and be like, oh, yeah, Tommy, he'll be right. You know, but now I'm like. (gasps) I know. Anything that involves a child, something happens in your brain, I tell you, and you just can't add a TV commercial will make me run from the room. (laughs) It's just That's so interesting. And I think that's probably one of the or the main reason I I didn't become a mother. I I often thought if I was born a man, I probably could have been a father. But the mother thing, it's like it just feels (laughs) Oh, like the responsibility of it, you know, and I, I'm too conscious of what can be handed down. So it's a funny one. But I always, I look on my books now because I came to this late, you know, I came to rising late, uh, relatively late. And they're like, they're my babies. They're my late late life babies. <laughs> and I'm, I'm grateful that you're sharing them with us all. Thank you so much. And enjoy Thank your you. walk in the snow. Have yes. you already been out on the sky today? We haven't. And that's we, the royal we, my dog and I know we're going out right now. You're going to go out and get under the sky and get on with your routine. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I'm impossibly grateful to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. Have a great night. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. That was Lisa Harding. You can find her on Twitter. She is at Lisa S. Harding. She is absolutely fantastic. The latest book is called Bright Burning Things. And um, I hope you track it down and enjoy it. And I hope uh, that conversation brought you value. And I hope that conversation, hope it didn't bring up too many uncomfortable things. But if it did bring up something uncomfortable, I hope that it also brought up the idea that life can be better if those uncomfortable things might be a part of your life, whether they be your own use of alcohol or someone you love. Yeah. There's plenty of help and life starts getting better. The moment you start accepting that you need help and understanding that it's bigger than you and you need something bigger than you to sort it out. That's my experience and the experience of many people I know. So 
If you don't know where to start, just fucking email me, all right? Send off your email at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, that helped me make this show this week. We have a lovely little cottage industry working here in the podcast tower. Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, Andy Marr, my audio producer, Hayley Van Spania on the socials, and, of course, Mike Mills, the fantastic and all-powerful toe hider. Follow him on Twitch, um, who made all the music. You're amazing. Look after yourself, and I'll talk to you on Friday. Until we speak then, sleep well. Sleep well. Sleep really well. Dream of beautiful things. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.